This podcast was brought to you by Hearing the Voice. Recorded on the 24th of February, 2016, it features Dr. Sam Warner on visions, voices, dissociated parts and child sex abuse. If you'd like to hear more about our research into voice hearing, or just keep in touch with us, you can visit our website, hearingthevoice.org, or tweet us at hearingvoice. This is what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to think about developing an inclusive knowledge base um, because I think it is, it is important that we think wider than, than the ordinary sphere of gold standard, nice approved research in terms of understanding any kind of clinical issue. Um, and having set up my understandings, my sources of knowledge, um, where that comes from, where I situate myself, I'm then going to talk about um, how, sexual, how experiences like sexual abuse um, foster uh, coping strategies um, around splitting, um, whether that's around visions, voices or dissociated parts. Um, so I'll think about how people get set up by the social context um, and more specifically within their own um, particular experience of abuse-defined reality. Um, then think about how people survive and how dissociation is part of that and then talk about what a recovery model uh, looks like or can, can be in a useful way. So I usually start by talking about myself <laughs> um, because always a good place to start but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to situate it in the next bit. So just thinking about, um, if we're thinking about the, the, the relationship between sexual, sexual abuse and people's experiences of dissociation in the widest sense. Um, I guess I think that very often we simply neglect what people say and we have neglected what people say for very many years. So we're beginning to listen to people like the Hearing Voices Network, to service users, to experts by experience in a whole range of different contexts. But that's quite a recent thing and people have had to fight for that right. Sometimes we forget our histories so um, and they can come, become very separate from each other. Um, so we, we end up reenacting the same struggles over and over again. And that's not a bad thing because we keep needing to say stuff. Um, my history, how I got into all of this, was I, um, I started in the 1980s. I was at Manchester University as an undergraduate. I applied here, they wouldn't have me. So <laughs> Durham's loss, um, <laughs> Manchester's gain. So anyway. <laughs> Um, so I'm there as an undergraduate, I live in a place called Hume, does anybody know Hume? Anybody heard of it? It was, it was one of the cities in the sky that were built in the 1960s when everybody had lots of optimism, so it was all, um, who said uh, you're, uh, you never had it better? Who was that? No, never had it so good? Yeah. Macmillan, there you go. That knew we'd get there eventually. So anyway, so we're all very optimistic. They built these cities in the sky so you could travel anywhere without um, hitting the ground. Um, but they built them in very run-down areas on the top of very run-down back-to-backs. They didn't clear out things like the, um, uh, the uh, cockroaches that lived in the horsehair that they used for insulation in the old houses. So when they put up these new cities in the sky, they were just full of cockroaches. So anyway, as a student, I didn't mind flicking cockroaches off my bed <laughs> as I got into it. I would mind very much now. But anyway, so 
in that, in, in that um, city in the sky, um, in fact, it, it was a rapist and mugger's paradise because you could get anywhere um, without hitting the ground. So a friend of mine was raped at Knife Point, leaving the pub opposite the flats where I lived. And this being the 80s, we were into politics. Um, we were into direct action, doing something about it. And um, we organised um, a Reclaim the Night March. Um, so we went through all the, all the places where women were particularly vulnerable to, to rape and assault on the streets. Um, and, uh, and we also organised a training day and a benefit in the evening. So the training day, we got people like Rape Crisis, Women's Aid, um, local anti-deportation, um, anti-racism um, groups to come along because a lot of the laws around immigration are pernicious and dangerous to women and children who have no independent rights of, um, of, of safety um, and access to services. Um, and in the evening, we had this benefit, which was opened by Sue Johnston, who used to be in Brookside in those days, has most recently been in Corrie. Um, and, in the, in, and in Brookside at the time, she was in a storyline where she'd been raped by a taxi driver. So anyway, she came and opened this benefit and we had local pop stars and stuff. We sang at it and I, and I joined my local rape crisis. Um, thereafter, joined a group called Taboo, which supports service women and girls who'd been sexually abused in childhood. So, so my history is rooted in survivor politics, um, in, su in survivor direct action, taking something that is wrong and doing something positive with it. So that's where I started at the end of the 80s, tired of having no money, no power and no status because you didn't get a lot in the third sector in those days. I think the, there is better recognition um, that there is specialist knowledge there now. Um, for example, I work with Bernardo's. I think there is recognition that they do something and NSPCC do something. That's my, um, that's my uh, <laughs> phone that keeps <laughs> making that noise. <laughs> um, uh, do something special um, and specialist. So let me just turn that off. So anyway, so I trained as a clinical psychologist because that was my quickest route into getting all three. And thereafter, I've always worked around sexual violence, child protection, um, domestic abuse, and their impacts on mental health. And as a consequence of that, I've always worked with people who were affected by those issues, some of whom are part of the Hearing Voices Network, some of whom um, have come other routes, um, for example, like Claire Shaw, I do quite a lot of work with a woman called Claire Shaw, who's an expert by experience on self-harm and self-injury. Um, uh, we're writing a report on suicide and self-harm at the moment. So, okay. So I think all of those different strands, whether you're talking about the Hearing Voices Network and their <coughs> claiming of space, whether you're talking about the women's movement and... and um, organizations like mine claiming space what all of those all of those individuals were saying were, was that the orthodoxy the biological understanding of distress is not good enough it doesn't tell us enough about our experiences and in fact hides a lot of inequality within the world so so in order to claim space you have to fight for it sometimes um, and in order to have a better understanding of things, you need to be inclusive around the evidence base. So in terms of what that means, that means saying we need to, to look beyond some of the gold standards um, set out by NICE. Um, uh, I did a paper with um, Helen Spandler um, looking at 
as an alternative to evidence-based practice, the benefits of doing practice-based evidence. Um, and that's about situating knowledge within the actual work that people do, um, that is built on the actual stories that people tell about their own experiences. Um, and I think it is about bringing those things together. That if you don't, if you simply um, have one without the other, you lose uh, a richness of understanding. Um, and I think practice-based evidence, i.e. the stuff that people are engaged with on a daily basis in practice, um, is important. Um, and it's important that we understand it. We understand it best when we always have a space for reflection. So I think there are three things that should always go together, and that is theory, research, and practice. And so important do I think that um, it is in my title on this book. So um, understanding the effects of child sexual abuse, feminist revolutions in theory, research, and practice. Um, as long as you are triangulating information from different sources, you will end up with something that is solid, that is justifiable, that can um, tell you something useful. So this is about listening to, reading about, and reflecting on the, the accounts that children and adults have, have, who have been sexually abused bring. Um, and like I say, I, I come with my own experiences, but I've sat and listened to an awful lot. I'm still in clinical practice, so I get, um, I get brought in usually by local authorities, sometimes health services jointly funded to work with young people um, who have complex um, needs around um, lots of abuse, lots of neglect, um, sexual abuse, but within the, within the context of lots of other things. So they may be people who hear voices, see visions, have dissociated parts, um, but also do lots of self-injury and may also be a danger to others. Um, in terms of thinking about what my communities of knowledge are, they, they relate to the experiences that I have had, the experiences that people have shared with me, and I have worked around sexual violence now for about 30 years, so I've heard an awful lot of stories one way or the other in lots of different contexts by lots of different people. Um, the relationships that I have and their relationships with other people who talk about these things or understand these things. So if I'm going back to make sense of stuff, there are people I will always talk to. There are books that I will engage with. And certainly for me, some of the most insightful, helpful books that I've um, read or, or, or in terms of all the written words have been books and they've been novels and autobiographies. So things like Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, um, there's a book called um, Don't, A Woman's Word, by a woman called Ellie Danica. Anybody heard of that? I guess not. It was a small book written by a woman in Australia in the 1980s. It's a very small book, but it was a really good one. Um, it's worth if you were, are in a second-hand shop seeing if you can find it. But um, anyway, uh, and, and I think it is about being able to stretch our understanding of what constitutes knowledge, not just from uh, the research literature through the grey literature, but out into the community and to those widely available social stories. Um, and because in the end, what practice, what those stories do is they give the why to the what. So the big scale studies tell you what is important, they don't tell you why. And I think you have to talk to individuals in order to do that. So that's, that's where my knowledge base comes from. Um, and I do do research with a big R, um, but I also do a lot of research with a small R, which involves reflecting on 
on the work that I do. And, and like I say, um, I work in practice as a clinician. I also work as an expert witness with the courts. So, all right. So if we're going to think about sexual abuse and how people get set up in it, um, we have to think about who and where and what happens. So um, in terms of abusers, what's your biggest risk factor for becoming an abuser, child sexual abuser? <laughs> um, yeah, 90, in any studies, anywhere in the world, in most contexts, you, you, you're loosely talking about 95% of sexual abusers are male. Um, one in 20 are women, um, and there may be variations in, in terms of the age of the victim might slightly shift it a bit, but it, but it is overwhelmingly men who sexualise power in that way. It doesn't work so well with that simple if you've been abused. Um, and that's because who is, most, who is most likely to be a victim of sexual abuse? Yeah, so it's not as stark as those first, uh, that, that first statistic. Um, but it, but it certainly seems that girls get sexually abused in far greater numbers than boys. So, so depending on how wide your definition is, um, people would estimate that between uh, one in two and one in five girls would have been sexually abused by the time they hit 18. And for boys, it might be between one and five and one in 10. The World Health Organization suggests that um, uh, girls are abused across the world um, at at least um, twice the rate boys are. So it's not as extreme, but, it, but there's certainly a difference there. So in terms of that kind of cycle of abuse, it, it doesn't stand up so well, because if you've been abused, if the idea is you've been abused and you go on to abuse, you'd have legions of women doing it. And women do abuse, but they tend not to abuse children in the same numbers as men abuse children sexually. So if you look at other forms of abuse, um, for example, child abuse, um, if we think about the four categories, neglect, uh, emotional abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse, um, what, what's the distribution there in terms of abusing children and families? Um, emotional abuse, who's most likely to? Who's most likely to yeah. Yeah, I'm saying of the parents, which one? Yeah. A <laughs> That a mother may be most likely to be in trouble with social services for doing it because they're around um, and they're most likely to be the recipient of social service intervention. But men and women are just as likely to be emotionally abusive. In terms of neglect, who is most likely? Again, parents, which one? <laughs> mm. So women may be prosecuted more, but men and women are just as likely to be neglectful of their children. Um, in terms of physical abuse, um, who is most likely to be physically abusive to their children? Men? Yeah, any, any, anybody want to argue with that? Fairly evenly spread <laughs> in terms of general physical abuse, more extreme ends, men, but gen un under, under teenage years, um, general kind of physical abuse, women and men, fairly evenly distributed. By the time children get to, uh, to teenage years, then it is overwhelmingly men. Uh, I don't think that's because women suddenly get nice. <laughs> I think it's simply that children get too big for women to hit in the same way that they did when they were little. 
So, all right. So, so there's something particular about sexual abuse um, that is different from other forms of abuse because it is so, it is so gendered in a way that other forms aren't necessarily, certainly for younger people, physically gets more gendered as, as children get older. In terms of context, um, what, what is the most likely context for a child to be abused in? Yeah. So somewhere in the family or around the family. So there was a report that came out in November last year on child sexual abuse. Did you see this? No, that was produced by the government. Um, that was looking at familiar, uh, in particular, child sexual abuse within the family. And what they, what they found was something like um, two-thirds of abuse um, happened within the family or around the family. And it's an, it's an important um, finding that. It's important to state that um, because we've, we've, we've seen a great hiving of money into child sexual exploitation. Uh, not that I'm saying that isn't important, and you've just had three men prosecuted in, in Rotherham today who've just been sentenced um, for horrific sexual exploitation of, of girls there. But if you look at which girls are being exploited, very many of them are ones that are already vulnerable because they've already been abused within a family context. So, um, so for example, I've been asked to do some work with a, with a family where, the, where a girl was sexually ex exploited within a similar context to Rotherham. Um, over the course of about seven years, her little sister never left the house in seven years. And she never left the house because the gang had said if she leaves it, they would rape her or kill her. So she, so she, was, a, she was a prisoner in her own home. Nobody dare let her out. And I talked to the grandmother and you had, you'd have a couple of men at the front of the flats. You'd have three at the back. Um, just waiting for the girl to come out and threatening from outside. And it has to be said, the police doing sod all on that particular occasion. None of whom have been prosecuted in that situation as well. So there's something about we may be really um, alive to the notion of sexual exploitation, but we, it sits within a context, a greater context of sexual abuse, which already sets people up for vulnerability. Um, which means that they're going to be vulnerable to others out on the streets. Okay, so there is something in order to understand sexual abuse. There's got to be something about sex, because without sex, it's another abuse of power. There's got to be an abuse of power. Without that, it's just sex, whatever that is. And I think the, the, the third thing that we have to make sense of is gender, because somewhere, somehow, um, it is a particularly gendered crime. Um, men are invited to act in a... a, a act out their power in a sexualized way much more than, than women are. It doesn't mean they don't, but it just means um, men, there's a greater um, uh, willingness, ability, push uh, for men to do that. Um, and if you, look at, if, if you look at abuse in terms of histories of, of abusers, it isn't necessarily sexual abuse that's in their history, but there's certainly abuse um, and neglect. Yeah. Okay, so... So in terms of that, in terms of what sets people up, I think we have to look at the social permissions that are around that um, enable, permit, promote um, some men to take up that option. So clearly there's lots of men who don't, but there are some men who do. So 
So what happens, I think, is that we give tacit permission, whilst also saying it's a really bad thing, we also give tacit permission um, or tacit understandings that, that make it possible for, for um, people to act in that way. So I think they're written into our laws, that differences around gender. Um, so, for example, if you think about rape laws and consent, what, what are they about? If we're talking about consent and its opposite in terms of rape, what are we, what are we actually talking about? Pardon? Power involving what? Shall I give you a clue? Okay. If I do that. Penis. Penis. There we go. Hey, Yes. So I'll just put that down a minute. Rape laws <laughs> are about a penis. They're not about anything else. In this country, they are always about a penis, whether you stick it in an anus, a vagina, um, or a mouth. They are always about a penis. In other countries, Australia being one of them, I, th I believe, um, you can also be raped with an implement. You can't be raped with an implement legally in this country. Um, you can be sexually assaulted with one, um, but it has to be a penis to constitute rape. There's more legislation around penises um, in terms of sex than there, there is around any other body part. Um, so what we might assume from that is the penis is really important, that any real sex has to involve a penis, um, and that the only people who can do real sex are men. Um, and they can do that well, or they can do that badly, they can do that right, or they can do that wrong. But what it means is we sometimes hide, we don't see the sexual abuse that is done by women. Um, sometimes we are more horrified by it because we don't expect it because they don't have a penis. Um, and, and just by virtue of having a penis, people would be constituted as being more guilty before they start. So a few years ago, um, there was a story in the press about, uh, I think it was a 12-year-old girl who'd got pregnant in Rotherham, back to Rotherham again. The, this, this girl, she was 12, and there was a Ferrari in the press because, um, or 12, which must have been 13, because she was given uh, the morning after pill and her mum didn't know. And there was a big, big story about this. Can anybody remember this? It's about in the last 10 years. Um, so she got pregnant again. And this time there was lots of press with her and mum saying, and we're keeping the baby in, and all of this. And, and they did a very kind of little interview with, with the boy. And this girl was a big bruiser. She was a big kind of developed, articulate, in a, in a certain kind of way, young woman. And there was this little boy who looked terrified. He was saying, I didn't know what was happening and I didn't know. And you think if, if he'd been a girl, she'd been, he'd been prosecuted if the roles had been reversed. But there was something about, because he owned a penis, even if by any objective standards he looked like a victim, somehow he was more culpable than she was. Um, so somewhere, how we set things up is really important. Um, when did um, rape within marriage become illegal? 90s. 90s yeah. yeah. So it's, it's not that long ago in this country. So it was something like 91, 93. Um, so it's really not that long ago. Um, in, the, in the 70s in this country, and I think as you're approaching the 80s, women couldn't get, um, you couldn't get a credit card, a bank account, or a mortgage without a man vouching for you. 
So you had to, you had to have a father or a husband or a brother who would vouch for you, but you couldn't do it independently. So somewhere we have these laws that, that, that are quite recent around stratifying and uh, cementing our differences. Um, so there's that. So we have this, this notion of the penis as a, as a thing that just acts. We then get four fairy stories that also reproduce and reinforce um, gender. Um, so fairy stories are there to help us make sense of the world. This is why we have them. Um, so just as an example of how we might get set up, um, uh, Sleeping Beauty. Who knows the story of Sleeping Beauty? Okay, so we'll just go through it slowly, uh, or just quickly, actually. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> not slowly. Uh, we've got Sleeping Beauty, and there's the old hag who's made her go to sleep because um, she didn't like her for whatever reason. So you only get to be a hag, don't you? Or virginal and very young. There's nothing in between um, as a woman's role within fairy stories. So there we go, traditional ones. Um, you then get... Um, get the, the father who's the king going, oh, God, what's happening? Somebody come and wake her up. So offers a reward, hand in marriage, all that kind of thing. Uh, nobody can wake her. And then the prince who's been away comes back on his big charger, which is a big horse. Whoa! And, and goes, whoa! Like that. Leaps, whoa! Leaps off, runs to her. Um, because she's so gorgeous, he can't help snogging her. And, uh, and she wakes up. Falls in love, they get married happily ever after. Ba-boom. This is your classic rape fantasy, isn't it? Yes. So let's do it again. So um, you've got Hag, you know, asleep in an open casket. So there she is. She's not closed. She's not covered up. She's giving it all that, showing her wares. Um, you've got a father, the king, pimping her out. Come and have a go if you're hard enough. Ba-boom. So, so, and anyway... <laughs> There, nobody can wake her up, nobody can get her excited, nobody's doing all this. So anyway, the, the prince comes back, he's on his charge and goes, whoa, or more accurately goes, whoa. And he leaps off, he leaps off, he dashes over, he can't help himself, and he has her. And in that moment of imposition, in that moment of forced sexualization, she wakes up, falls in love, happily ever after. So message being, we all need a good man to rape us awake. So, in the Disney version, there are no erect penises. But what there are is still the same cell. So we still have the same stories occupying the same kind of rites of passage. And although we have different stories now that challenge the orthodoxy, the reason we find them funny is because we know what the real rules are really anyway. So they still function on, on the same basis. So one of my favourite series is the Shrek series. Um, I love Shrek, uh, but, it, but it doesn't, it, it, it sets up, it, in theoretically it sets up that we don't have to be beautiful princesses and beautiful whatever to be, to be happy and uh, to win the day. We can be ogres. Well, that would be fine, except we know really that's Cameron Diaz. She isn't an ogre, is she? <laughs> so... <laughs> So it's only tweaking around the edges. So somewhere, all of those things are part of the narratives that individual abusers at some point can use to justify their abuse to themselves and others. And what they tend to rely on is a notion of unstoppable biological 
um, desire, need, sexualisation. So, and that's written into the laws, that's written into fairy stories. And in, and in the original version, she was raped awake, Sleeping Beauty, because um, they're always more violent, the, the original stories. So what that helps individual abusers do is set up their version of reality. So they construct reality. Um, I have lots of threes. Um, so if I had time, I'd draw you lots of triangles, get a bit obsessed around triangles. Um, <laughs> so I think the world can be explained in triangles. Um, although what is the most popular number in the world? Seven. Seven, it is, yes. No idea why, it's not three. But, um, but anyway, so um, sex power gender, understanding laws, stories, underlying theories, understanding experience and identity. For me, how reality is set up is in terms of the ways we understand the world, the experiences we have, and the ways we see ourselves. So how we see ourselves will impact on how we make sense of our experiences and our place in the world, and the experiences we have will impact on how we see ourselves um, and experience the world around us. So what abusers do is set up reality as if it is the truth. If, if it looks like this is all there is, um, then you can't look around it. You can't look for alternatives. And that, that can set people up um, and trap them in realities that they do not want, but they, they feel they cannot leave. Um, this is also how biological psychiatry um, sometimes functions. Have you met um, Pete Bullimore? Anybody? Yeah. So Pete Bullimore, um, I'm going to tell a story about Pete Bullimore um, that he, would, he shares with people. He talks about his own experiences. Um, he's a voice hearer. He's an incredibly successful trainer. Um, he's, he's a, he does lots of really good stuff. Um, but he, all, he wasn't always like that. So I'm, I'm telling you a story that he would tell himself. So I'm not disclosing anything that he wouldn't share himself. I possibly tell this story about him more than he tells it himself because I think it's really telling but anyway um when he was when he was a young adult um he'd experienced sexual abuse by his babysitter uh, babysitter growing up um he had a breakdown of sorts lots of things went wrong and he started to have some unusual beliefs and to start um seeing and hearing things and one of his unusual beliefs at this particular point was that he was um the son of god so he believed himself to be jesus christ and he was in sheffield um, he, he lives in Sheffield and he was rushing through the city centre on this particular day and there's a, a cathedral and as he rushes past the cathedral he notices the doors open, lights on, people inside, there's a mass happening um, and the pulpit is empty so he's in and he rushes to the front, um, he rushes to the front and he stands in the pulpit and the priest bishop in charge says oh my god and Pete says, you recognise me. Um, and then was surprised and dismayed when they brought the police to take him away. And the police took him away and they brought him to um, a medical facility, to a psychiatric hospital. And the psychiatrist that he met said, Mr. Billamore, you have schizophrenia. You will have schizophrenia for the rest of your life. You will never work again. Pete didn't work for the next 10 years. He got lost in the psychiatric system because he was presented with a reality that didn't have any joins in it, that didn't have any um, alternative to it, didn't have any, anything around the edges that said, this isn't always what people believe. 
And after about 10 years, he met an OT who said, not everybody thinks like that. Some people um, think that voices can be meaningful. Do you want to come to a hearing voices group with me? And through that, um, that was his path to recovery. And it was in that context that I met Pete. Um, but I say that because biological psychiatry operates in the same way that abusers do. It, it operates in a, this is the truth. There is no alternative to it. Um, so, so what abusers do is manage how people make sense of themselves. So what's the first rule of abuse? Um, if abusers are abusing. If you want to abuse somebody, what's the first thing that you might do? Pardon? Don't get caught, and how might you do that? Control, control and what's the first way? First, first tool of control. Might be, might be love. Power. It's using your power. If I wanted to control one of you now, if I wanted to make you under my sway now, before the end of this next hour, <laughs> well, who, what would I do first of all? Maybe, yes, yes. But before I was nice, what would I do? Isolate you. Yeah, first rule of control. So I would say, I'm just going to break for a moment. Can you just come with me? <laughs> and then I'd get you outside and I would say, look, I am going to tell you this. I didn't want to. I know we haven't known each other for very long, but I am going to tell you this. Everybody in there, and I don't want to tell you this, everybody, everybody in there doesn't like you. Um, they don't like you and they think you're silly. I am the only one who thinks you're okay. Um, and I know you don't know, I mean, you know, why should you trust me? But so that you know what it's going on. If you, if you hear people smirking, giggling, whatever, they're not laughing at my jokes, they're laughing at you. Right? And so you know when that's happening, I'm going to wink every time it happens. Okay? So we'll go back in. And... I can guarantee, even though, and I could say this is an exercise, it's not true, you'd still think, why did she pick me? Why did she pick me? Don't, what did she see? And particularly, now that she said that, <laughs> I'd need to think about why she picked me. And I could do that. And I, you might not then do everything I told you. You wouldn't be a, you know, zombie. But I'd certainly screw with your head. <laughs> and you'd certainly be a bit worried. <laughs> Um, and I could do that in, in, you know, in seconds, in a very small amount of time. So abusers do that over time. So, so isolation is the first rule. So if you talk to, the, on the news, um, girls in Rotherham being sexually exploited, girl was saying, um, what he did was isolate me from my friends and my family. Um, in the end, I only had him. What abusers do is isolate families from the world isolate children within, um, within those families. And once that happens, it can be incredibly hard to, um, to escape, to get out. So, so, for example, a family I worked with where, um, um, a child, where there, was, uh, there was lots and lots of abuse. Um, there was, uh, the, the mother was kept a prisoner in one part of the house. Children were, whilst the children were abused in another part of the house, and, and one of the children turned up at school with a load of bruises and had spent many years hiding, lying and accommodating the abuser and on this particular occasion said, um, my, my father tried to kill me. And the father was made to leave 
whoopee-dee. But for six months, nobody in that family would talk to, to this victim. And they wouldn't talk to, to, to the victim because they were so controlled, they'd been so isolated, they were so dependent on that abuser um, that they were cross <laughs> that he'd had to leave. And I met them some years later where they were kind of sat around laughing and not in a happy way, but in a hysterical way going, ha ha ha, um, can you remember when we wouldn't talk to you? Because you told. And they suffered the most horrific abuse over very, very many years. Um, so isolation, justifying abuse. Like I say, I think, I think there is something around how we set up gender within society that gives tacit permission for people to act in particular ways. So an awful lot of um, kind of normal sexual development is, is, is not equal, is not, um, is not necessarily helpful or happy for, uh, for young people engaged in it. Um, that um, particular, particularly if we, if we also take into uh, account the pornification of society, the ready access to, to porn and the whole kind of stratified differentiation of women's roles, men's roles that take things like sleep, Sleeping Beauty and then make them much more stark, much more exaggerated um, around physical bodies um, on, on the internet. So, so there's all of that that sets expectations up. Um, and if you talk to young people about what they think sex is, um, what they think the ordinary exchange of that is, um, there's an awful lot of acceptance of, 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 of abuse of power. Um, so the, again, recently we had the recognition or the lowering of the definition of domestic abuse um, to, to include 16-year-olds because what is recognised is an awful lot of domestic abuse and violence happens to young people um, in their teen years. So there's something about how that's set up. You want it, you made me do it. So, um, so if people do it, uh, abusers might talk about um, if, if you do it free, you must want it. Um, if you accept the presents, the gifts, the money, then you're a prostitute, you deserve it. So whatever people do, there isn't, there isn't a way out. Um, that in terms of silencing victims, people can get silenced both by love and fear. Um, love in many ways is, is, is much more effective than fear. Fear only works as long as you're in that situation. Um, but if you can get out of it, if you can find a route out, you might tell. Love can keep you silent a lot longer. So, um, so for example, um, uh, Mich uh, Michelle, Mike, whatever, Mark Dutreux, the man in Belgium who kept children in his cellar. Can you remember this one? Um, this is a few years ago. He, he, the, 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 there were two girls that were the last girls that he'd kept in the cellar. And, um, and one of them, the, the one who was there longest, talked about that she was, she was living in a cellar. She was being raped. She was being abused. But when the police first came to the house, she remained silent because she believed the only person that cared was her abuser. And she did that because he, she thought he cared, not because she was frightened. Now, there might have been fear somewhere in there as well. But in that moment, what she did was believe he was the only one that cared. She believed him when, she, when he told her repeatedly, her parents don't care, that's why they've let her 
come to live with him. He's the only one that cares about her. And again, that couldn't be even more stark. Um, so, uh, yeah, people make a um, sense of shame and misplaced re responsibility um, uh, in terms of feeling shame because they feel responsible for it, shame because they didn't tell, shame because their bodies act in ways, um, respond to being touched, um, so they feel guilty. That people are given impossible choices, it's you or them, so either you let me um, do this to you or I will do it to your, your parents, I will hurt your parents, your siblings, um, your friends or your pets. So somewhere um, people feel that they're responsible because they feel like they're making choices when there are no choices, they're just simply set up. Um, and, and, you know, choice between sexual assault and physical violence, rejection or humiliation is no choice. Um, again, for people, um, they can feel increased confusion around it, um, using um, drugs and alcohol. So sometimes, um, and again, a lot of this happens in sexual exploitation, that children are given lots of drugs and alcohol, which, most, which increases their dependency, but also means that it's very hard to untangle what's happened to you if you're in a half-lived state. Um, also, if children are living in more than one reality, so there'll be the reality of what goes on behind closed doors, and then there'll be the reality of what happens when you go out to school. And what you present in those different places can be very different. And actually, sometimes um, the police misrecognise that as well. So I can think of, this is an adult, but an adult who had repeated experiences of, of domestic abuse, um, and she died as a result of um, the physical assault by one of her, her partners. And there had been repeated call-outs but people never saw her vulnerability because she was very loud, very shouty, um, very assertive on the front step. So what the police never did was go, she might be able to do that here. <laughs> Doesn't mean she can do it when the door's shut. All right, so people get set up and then they have to find ways of coping with that. I've lost my thing, there it is. All right, so coping when controlled. <laughs> so this... When people are, are stressed, they, oh, there it is. Ta-da. The five F's house, okay? <laughs> so people do their automatic, um, this is what you're born with kind of coping strategies. You don't have to think, they're just, uh, they're just immediate. So when, when people are abused, um, this is this is what this is what babies do. This is the thing that babies do, and we know that because when they come out of the womb, what do they do? They, pardon? They look. They focus on faces and they cry. Yeah. So we know that there's something that is kind of pro-social to begin with. They they're, they're expecting, driven to get people to come to them. So this is the first thing that babies do. Um, and they will continue to do that um, unless stressed and until that doesn't work. And then they will do a combination of these. So, um, and this is what people do when they're being abused. So they may well try and make friends with their abusers. They may be actually encouraged to do that. They may try running away or they may try fighting. They may not be able to do that. They may not get very far. There may be nowhere to run to. Um, and fighting may, be, be, may not be um, an option when people are much more scary than you are, much more bigger than you are. 
and people always hope they do this but if you talk to again if you talk to women or you look at the research around women who've, who've been raped as adults very few people fight back because people actually move from these active approaches very quickly down to passive and that's because the greater the fear the more likely you are to just stop um, and then people will do the the flop or the freeze so and I'll give you an example of this. I, I did a, an assessment once of a little boy who'd had profound experiences of neglect, abuse and sexual assault. And I met him when he was about five, um, five or six. And when I first met him, he did the friend thing. So he did it in a really inappropriate way. So he'd never met me before. And then he was sat all over me and doing this. And I had to go like that and shake his hand in a very... I'm putting some distance between us and but there you go hello kind of way I then went to see him. that was at the foster carers I then went to see him at um, school so um, I observed him in the classroom he had to have a friend with him i.e a teaching assistant because he couldn't be trusted with any of the little people around him because he was so sexualized and hyper that he just wasn't safe so they did the fry the friend thing I then went to try and do a session with him in a room and uh and we got there, he ran around and then he ran off. So we did the flight. I ran off after him and then thought, oh, for fuck's sake, you're a clinical psychologist. And so I ran back <laughs> um, and he ran back into the room with me. So um, he did that. And then I observed him in the playground at break. And, um, and he tried to do the friend thing. And it was like watching a spinning top because there'd be little groups of people, little groups of children. He'd spin up to them. He'd stay with them for so long, but because he couldn't really do the friendship thing very well because he'd never really had a good relationship, at some point they'd eject him and then he'd spin off to the next one. And then he'd spin off to the next one. And he eventually fetched up with this big lad and they started fighting like this. Bam, 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 bam. Um, and then at some point he ended up on the floor and the big lad sat on top of him. And at that point he did the flop. He just stopped fighting, protecting himself, doing anything. He just lay there. He didn't get into a ball. He didn't save his face. Kids doing this on top of him. And I dashed over, dragged him off. Now that to me tells me that, that that child had suffered an enormous amount of abuse because that is as extreme an example of learned helplessness as I'd ever seen. He just didn't, once he knew someone was bigger, he just stopped protecting himself. Um, and he would do, so he'd do the freeze sometimes when people tried to move him. So somewhere, because he was completely, this is about, this is about power, powerlessness. That's increasing the further down you get. So for him, he lived a lot of his life there. Um, so somewhere he did that. If people can't get away, there's the physical flopping or there's the freezing, you just passively let things happen because you can't not, you can't do any of those other things. You can't fight your way out. You can't flight your way somewhere. So you have to find ways of protecting your head. And for that, um, I, I think we do a combination of the three Ds. And these, again, are automatic. These are just things that people do. Um, so, so for example, um, people start, something horrible happens, start with the denial. This is not happening to me. But if it keeps happening, 
you can't keep doing denial. So the next thing that people do is distraction. Um, and distraction, you have to keep going with, because as soon as you stop the distraction, it stops working. So just as, a, as an example of that, and just to prove it, um, I would like us all to do an ex exercise in distraction. Okay, so I'd like you all to think about, anybody got issues with oranges before I start? No, okay, let's hope you don't at the end of this. Here we go, I want you all to think about a nice juicy orange. It's lovely, it's orange, it's orangey, it's an orange. Have you all got an image of an orange somewhere? Yes, okay, I want you to stop thinking about oranges now. Who's thinking about oranges? Stop it. <laughs> Anybody not thinking about oranges? I'm coming towards you with my lovely juicy orange. <laughs> it's very orangey. <laughs> what are you thinking about? I'm trying to think about apples. <laughs> right, <laughs> but as soon as you stop, orange is back, yes. So, <laughs> so distraction only works as long as you keep it up. So the next thing that people do is the dissociation. So this is when they metaphorically leave their bodies um, and come back after the abuse has happened. And that's... Um, it is something that people can do. It's enormously powerful, our heads. We do things to protect ourselves. It is really good. Um, it only becomes a problem when it generalises. And if you're living your life in crisis, if, if you, you only, if you, you know, Foucault's notion of the panopticon, you know, where you can be viewed at any particular time, you just don't know when, um, that's like abuse in the home. So, so children know they will abuse, they don't know when, so they always have to live in a state of heightened um, anxiety, heightened stress. Um, so always then do these coping strategies become set up, they get um, solidified and they get generalised. And if you do all of that, that's going to have a big impact on your ability to remember stuff. So, so people very often can't remember much about the actual abuse. If you talk to them afterwards, they can remember going, you know, I can remember being taken to the room, I can remember the lot going on, can't remember what happened after that. Um, when that happens, people can then feel like maybe it didn't happen at all. Um, and then we sometimes get into memory wars like we did at the end of the 80s around the recovered memory movement and the false memory movement. Now clearly, there are unscrupulous therapists who do crap therapy, who put memories in, um, but, but equally it is an abuser's um, uh, great get-out scheme as well. Um, it's, it's, it's very rare, um, as far as I'm concerned, um, that people completely lose their memories and then recover them all in one go. It does happen, um, but, I, I, but, but very rare. It's more, more frequently do people have gaps or fragments or split-off parts. So they have bits. And I think that's about when people use dissociation. So if you use dissociation during abuse, then you will have gaps and fragments. If you use dissociation after abuse, um, then you, you, you can lose that, that sense. So to give you a concrete example, um, thinking about somebody I know who was, whose uh, parent tried to strangle and drown them. If someone tries to strangle and drown you and you use dissociation as a coping strategy, what's likely to happen? You die, exactly. So it's not a good coping strategy. So that particular person used dissociation afterwards. And that was actually a family coping strategy because all of the abuse happened before she was um, about six. After that, no abuse. After that, the entire family dissociated. 
They acted, acted like it had never happened. Um, so everybody acted like everything's great, everything's fine. And over the years, it became like that. Um, she left home, but would go back every Sunday for lunch. Um, so did her sister, everybody did this. And then when she was in her 30s, she went, to, she went for therapy because she'd fallen out with somebody. And as she walked through the door, she said, um, uh, my father tried to kill me. And until she said it, she'd forgotten it. As soon as she said it, it was as if she'd always known. And I think that happens very rarely. It happens sometimes, but I, but I, I have spoken to, read about, um, engaged with hundreds, possibly thousands of people being sexually abused, and I've only ever heard of that three times. It's much more likely that you get the fragments because it's, it's more likely you get some dissociation during as well. Um, but occasionally happens. But that, that can make it unreal. It makes it very hard for people to work out what's, what did happen and what didn't, because there's all, all of that going on. Um, in terms of people then get set up with, with their, their split off parts, so that may be voices and visions that continue to stay around long after the abuse has happened, or again, the different parts um, that help them negotiate their life. And everybody does this to some extent, talking about the woman who was murdered just now. What she did was present a particular part to the police. What she hid was a more vulnerable part. Um, what, what, what children will do is learn very well to present different parts um, in different places. Um, so, um, so what you see at school is not what you see at home. Sometimes those things bleed out, but, but, but people survive very well by splitting parts off. Um, people survive when they, when, when they shut off the trauma um, in, in, in different bits. Visions and voices continue to can trouble people, but, but at least, um, again, if you split off a voice, if there's a voice, I can think of a girl I worked with um, who was sexually abused by her brother um, and he was, he was the golden child in her family who was hugely successful and she was the kind of um, failure because she'd got mental health problems um, and she got mental health problems because she heard voices and she heard voices, actually the voice she heard was a brother's um, and a brother was always telling her to kill herself, um, that she was worthless, whatever. And at least with that we could talk about, but we know he'd say that. Um, you wouldn't listen to him if you could see him, <laughs> so no point listening to him now. Um, there was something about she felt really bad, but at least it wasn't her telling her that she was bad. It was her brother, and we knew he'd go there. So, so those things, if you live in crisis all the time, um, those, those situational coping strategies will just stay and get stuck and get set up. Sometimes people then not only have the abuse to cope with, but then have the, the ancillary kind of coping strategies that have helped them survive, but now cause them bother as well, because, um, because voices obviously and visions can be terrifying, um, and it can be really um, uh, frightening to, to lose time. So for example, if people are unaware that they dissociate, or unaware that they have different parts, they can find themselves in places, don't know how they've got there, um, or doing something that they think, I don't, I don't know why I'm doing that. So that can all be frightening as well. So sometimes people might use 
um, coping, uh, coping strategies that involve self-harm, which is a way of regulating some of the feelings that are around this. So who can remember Yerkes Dodson's law? It's relationship between performance and arousal or stress. And the reason I put that up is because I think partly what happens with abuse or other, any distressing traumatic event um, is that it impacts on how aroused people are, um, on how emotional they are. And it kind of relates... It, it relates to, to this. What happens is um, people get... As, as a way of coping with abuse, a way of coping with, with, with the difficulty that either get over-emotional um, and get overwhelmed by their feelings or under-emotional and kind of distance, dissociated from them. And, and I think the, the, the flight and the flop are about the dissociation, the, the, the fight um, and the freeze are about being absolutely overwhelmed by the, the emotion and they kind of correspond to here. So um, arousal, um, if this is zero and this is 100%, whatever that means, um, if, if you're not aroused, you're just asleep, so you're not doing anything, you then get to an optimum level where everything's firing on all cylinders, you're thinking with great clarity, acting with great efficiency, then you get overwhelmed. And um, um, what I say is that side is mainly about thinking, this side is mainly about feeling. So, um, and, and if you get an excess feeling, this is when you get into high anxiety states. Um, and if you push people far enough, this is when you find psychosis. This is when people lose touch with reality. This is when the voices, visions, and, um, and, and the horrors that they see and they carry with them um, become, become too much, they're just there. Um, the flip of that is, is if you have too many negative thoughts, you end up in a, in a very depressed place. So worries me, nothing is good, um, nothing will ever be good, and everything shuts down eventually. And what's the extreme form of depression? Begins with a C, it's Welsh band. There you go, well done. <laughs> um, catatonia. So, and, and people get, get completely, can get completely shut down. So, so um, they, again, someone I worked with over a long period of time um, had a lot of neg you know, horrible experiences in terms of sexual abuse, um, but also uh, all, all sorts of horrible things happened. She had a particularly bad year when she suffered lots of losses, and in the end she just couldn't cope. So she was normally here. When she got stressed, she'd lose touch with reality. She'd start seeing hearing things. Um, she'd become very dissociated. But on this, this occasion, it just became too much and everything shut down to the extent that she couldn't, um, yep, yeah, she, couldn't, she couldn't eat. Um, she had to be fed through her stomach. It, it, it was extreme. So somewhere, self-harm moves people around this. So sometimes when people are overwhelmed by their feelings, by their dissociated parts, self-injury can, can bring people back down. It gives people relief. Sometimes when people have got so numb, Self-harm and self-injury helps them feel again. I cut to know that I'm alive. So it helps people move around that. Um, and 
if, if people are using those things, then clearly we have to think about if this is helping people, if this is not about suicide, to take that away from people actually leaves them very vulnerable. Um, so, so important to recognise that it has a place. Um, need to think about when people do it, because uh, before, during or after dissociation can impact on how dangerous it is. So sometimes people will do it before to forestall dissociation. So I know, I know I'm losing it, I know I'm losing my, my connection with the world, so I'm going, to, I'm going to bring myself back. If people are already dissociated, so, um, so for example, um, Vicky, I'm using her name because she's written about herself in here. Um, this is a special issue on harm minimisation and self-harm, and she's a person who uses, who's, who's used a lot of self-injury over the years. Um, when she gets dissociated and frightened by the things she sees and hears, um, she ties ligatures because she knows if she does that, it stops, and then someone can cut the ligature off. Um, so, um, and, and after dissociation, sometimes people use it because, um, because they're angry with themselves. Um, they don't like they don't like the fact that they don't know what they've done. They don't know where they've been. So, so it has a different relationship, and it's um, going to be more dangerous at some times than it will be at others. So, yeah, um, we can make things worse by mistaking people's coping strategies um, for for identities. And I talked about Pete earlier. Um, Pete Pete got trapped in an identity that was absolutely of no use to him at all. Being a schizophrenic just didn't work for him. It worked much better being, being somebody who heard voices and sees visions. And that isn't to say that he doesn't still hear voices and see visions, he still does, but he is much more able to manage those. Um, so part of how I work, part of um, how Hearing Voices Network is set up um, is uh, an, another kind of progressive movements both within feminism and women's organisations as well as um, progressive mental health work is around challenging the tactics that control reality. It's about saying we don't have to all understand it in the same way. We need to see whether it works for us. So that might be about understanding and renegotiating identity. How I see myself, how I see others. That's about being client focused and client positive as opposed to abuser defined. Um, so thinking about thinking with clients about what they need um, and and recognizing that they may need an awful lot of validation um, if they've been invalidated all their lives both within abusive relationships but also in subsequent systems that don't recognize their coping strategies as coping strategies so somewhere that's about moving from maintenance model of mental health to um, to a more hopeful recovery orientated place and hopefulness is, is really important because, um, because hopefulness is the marker between um, survival and death. When people lose hope, um, that's when it's difficult to hang on to life. So people don't even have to be depressed, they just need to lose hopefulness. Um, and we know this from uh, all the uh, assisted suicide stuff that, um, that's discussed. People might never have been depressed or never had abuse. They just hit a point when they think the quality of my life is not going to be good enough for me after this point. So having systems that are hopeless pushes people towards death. We need systems that are built on hopefulness 
um, in order to help people stay in the world. Um, we need to work with dissociation, understand it, and not ignore visions, voices, and dissociated parts. So this is, you know, I'm sure I'm preaching to the converted, but this is about saying they are meaningful. So even the scary ones have important mes messages. So I always talk about visions and voices being early warning systems. Um, they're there to alert you to problems. So you don't have to take them literally. You don't have to do what they say, but you do have to listen to them in the sense of, if they're saying you need to kill yourself, then clearly there's something that's not working at the moment. So we need to work out what that is and do something about it. Um, we have to find ways of managing that. So some of that is listening, um, interpreting, um, and, then, and then acting. Not just listening and acting, but listening, interpreting, and acting. Um, it's about engaging with people's different parts and honoring them. So, so people can carry um, children with them over time that are part of them, that are internal to them, that maybe have been ignored. And again, in terms of work, this sometimes means that work takes a long time because you have to engage with different stories, different narratives, all within the same person. So it's like having a group session, but with one person. And different parts will have different coping strategies and different needs in relation to that. They'll need to express different things. So some parts will have enormous guilt and shame. Some parts may ha hold the suicidal thoughts. So what they need may be slightly different. Um, and the aim is to, to, to enable dialogue within a person, to engage um, with people. And sometimes that's about helping, pe helping people understand their parts when they don't recognize their parts exist. Or so for example, I don't know, um, with, with a particular client, um, uh, with, with her permission, we filmed one of her parts because she had no conscious, conscious knowledge of it. So she wanted to see what that part was like. Um, and, and actually, um, she was more sympathetic <laughs> um, to, to her, herself um, and was able to honour some of that. And her need, she'd never had a time when she felt safe. And what that part did was, was engage in a world where you could play. And so it's important to build that into her life, to um, have a part of the room that was dedicated to playing and toys and stuff like that. Um, it's about addressing fear and anxiety um, in terms of what, what still upsets and scares people now and helping people manage their feelings because, because the numbing or the excess can be very frightening. So part of it is, is simply about finding ways of helping people move um, either away from their feelings when they're too much or, or move towards their feelings when they're, when they're, they're, they're away from when them, they're so numb. Um, and some of that is about feeling safe. It's being in a place where you can be, begin to have a relationship with yourself. Um, and I guess to, to finish, um, for me, it is recognising that the, the personal is still political, which was the slogan that I grew up with in the... Uh, in the women's liberation movement, as was, um, that from our personal experiences, we, we theorised our place within the world and we understand uh, and we built a politic around that. And that politics was around um, fighting for equality, freedom and, and basic human rights. Um, and I guess I still believe it's necessary to, to have revolution, not just in terms of mental health, but in terms of the world. 
Um, if we have no equality in the world, we will have no equality in the home. Um, we need to know what's wrong, but we also have to need, we also have to have a vision of what's right. So have some kind of utopia that we can aim towards. And I go back to Ellie Danica um, and her book, A Woman's Word, Don't. Um, to quote her probably badly after all these years, um, but she said, um, may as well dream big. Big dreams um, cost the same as little dreams, may as well dream big. So I think it is important to have big dreams. It is important to have a sense of utopia where we want to be, where we're heading for. Um, because then um, we enable people to recover, not just in terms of recovery from lives that have been blighted by abuse, but recover in terms of creating worlds in which we can all live safely um, in equality. So. <laughs>